Our Bible passage this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, beginning at verse 20. If you want to follow along with one of the Bibles which is in front of you on the shelf, it's on page 976. So, page 976, Matthew 11, beginning at verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. <clears throat> Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Well, do keep the Bibles open. Over the last three weeks, we've seen a Jesus who did miracles to identify who he was and to illustrate what he'd come to do. And we've seen that uh, Jesus was one who taught with authority and had the ring of truth about what he said. And we've seen a character like no other. But what has been the response? Now, we would have assumed that the responses would have been positive. After all, it was said of Jesus that he went about doing good. But that was not always the kind of the positive response. In fact, the religious leaders in particular were negative. Their response was, in fact, perverse. So if uh, you just want to see where these places are, um, I'll explain them. Uh, these places, Chorazim, Capernaum and Bethsaida, uh, they are places today where no one lives, which is interesting. That's what Jesus said would happen. They're archaeological sites on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. Chorazim is inland from Capernaum on higher ground. All you'll find there today is a ruined synagogue, and an abandoned olive press. 
with hundreds of these little chaps, Syrian rock hyraxes, scurrying around in the rubble. They are rather cute little chaps. Um, they are apparently related to elephants. So, <laughs> picture this if you're listening online. Picture a very, very shrunken, woolly mammoth without a truck, tunk, without a trunk or a tusk. And you get the picture. Well, maybe you don't, but anyway. And then there's Bethsaida, whose uh, entrance is this, um, with a little, uh, actually, the little um, stele there called, little kind of signpost thing there, is a reconstruction of uh, various bits which the Assyrians smashed when they uh, conquered the place. But um, Bethsaida, in Jesus' day, was on the Lake of Galilee, right on the coastline. Today, it is one and a quarter miles from it because the amount of water that has been extracted for irrigation in recent years because of sedimentation and some minor seismic activity. It is a very large site indeed, and it has the most effective way of ensuring that its visitors keep to the paths. These are left over from the 1967 uh, six-day war minefields put there by the Syrians whose territory it was until that war. And then there is Capernaum, which is still on the coast because it's a, a higher part of uh, the coastline than Bethsaida, but there is now a pretty steep drop from where it is to where the water is to be found. And Jesus contrasts these three places, Chorazim and Bethsaida, with those two with Tyre and Sidon, cities on the Phoenician coast, which is uh, the Lebanese coast today. But in olden times, Tyre and Sidon were associated with Baal worship, arrogant materialism and rampant immorality. Capernaum in contrast with, is contrasted with Sodom, which is in the Old Testament the epitome of a city of sin. Now these notorious Old Testament places, said, uh, places, Jesus said, would have repented and not have had judgment executed on them if what Jesus had said and done among the people of Sodom, he'd, uh, if, wrong way around, if, if what Jesus had said to the people in the first century Galilee, he had said to the people of Sodom and Tyre back in their day, they would have repented, they would have turned to God and they would have escaped judgment. And yet these people who had the privilege of seeing Jesus in person and seeing what he did and hearing what he said in the first century they turn their backs on him. So Jesus concluded that it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for these notorious places than these more familiar towns of Capernaum, Chorazim and Bethsaida, for theirs had been a truly perverse response. They hadn't denied that great acts had been performed by Jesus, and that they were miraculous. Their sin was that they ascribed the source of these acts of compassion 
yes, to a supernatural source, but to a malevolent one rather than a benevolent one. They ascribe them to the devil rather than to God. So Jesus speaks words of judgment on them. And then immediately, Jesus in Matthew um, 25 to 30 speaks what are perhaps among the most tender words and appealing words that he ever uttered. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Jesus addresses two invitations to us, preceded by two statements about himself. And those two statements offer more about the knowledge of God. The word that is common to both statements is the word reveals. So God is revealed only by Jesus Christ. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus explains, nobody knows the Father except the Son and to those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see, only Jesus knows God so only he can make him known. And that means, of course, that only Christ can make the Father fully and finally known. He is partially known in other ways, in the order and beauty of the created universe, in the moral demands of our consciences, in the unfolding developments of history. And yet, even though creation tells me of his glory and conscience of his righteousness, and history, his power and providence, nobody tells us of his love for sinners or his plan to redeem us except Jesus Christ. And this is why every inquiry into the truth of Christianity must begin with the historic person of Jesus. The most unnerving thing about Jesus of Nazareth is the quiet unassuming yet confident way in which he advanced his stupendous claims. There was no fanfare of trumpets, no boasting, no ostentation. His manner is altogether unaffected. And yet, there he was, daring to call the Lord of heaven and earth his Father, saying that he himself is the Father's only Son, stating that all things have been delivered to him by his Father. In other words, he is the heir of the entire universe and claiming that only he knew the Father and only the Father knew him. In other words, there exists, he's claiming, between the Father and the Son, a uniquely intimate and reciprocal relationship. Jesus' claim is so absolute and exclusive that no other religious teacher in history has ever dared to make it. God is revealed fully and finally only by Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, as usual, offers some uh, valuable clarifying insights about Jesus in relation to other religious figures in history. Speaking of Jesus as he is presented in the scriptures, Lewis says... On the one side, clear, definite moral teaching. On the other, claims which, if not true, are those of a megalomaniac, compared with whom 
Hitler was the most sane and humble of men. There is no halfway house and there is no parallel in other religions. If you'd gone to the Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are in the veil of illusion. If you'd gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you'd gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? He would have first rent his clothes and then he have beheaded you. If he had asked Confucius, are you heaven? I think he would probably reply, Lewis says, remarks which are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. So the idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is completely out of the question. Lewis continues, in my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from that form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. If you think you are a poached egg when you're looking for a piece of toast to suit you, you may be sane. But if you think you are God, there is no chance for you. He says, we may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror and adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. That's C.S. Lewis, God in the dock. What are we to make of Jesus Christ? So when we speak of Jesus to others, we must not bow down to the pluralistic ethos of our culture and allow him to be reduced to one religious or moral teacher among others. He claimed to be God. Either he was or he was not. If he was not, we certainly should not believe in and follow him. If he was, we should present him as we find him in the scriptures, knowing that some will be drawn to him while others will ridicule, reject, or even give us a hard time for mentioning him, just as they did the apostles and countless other Christians through the centuries. As we speak to others of Christ with the same love and humility that he modelled for us, we can be assured that he will be glorified and those he chooses will respond. Next, the second statement. God is revealed only to little children. 11.25 I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and clever and revealed them to little children. He's particularly thinking of the religious leaders of his day. Wise is probably not the best translation. They're certainly knowledgeable people. But given that wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's probably not the best. Now, literally, the, the Greek word is babies. And by babies, Jesus meant not the young in years, but those who, whatever their age, are childlike and humble in their approach. Babies in the vocabulary of Jesus are sincere, humble seekers after the truth. From everybody else, Jesus says, God hides himself. Now don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. 
This isn't an, encourage to, an encouragement to murder our intellect or to, in, to deny the importance of our God-given rational minds. It's simply to acknowledge the limitations of our human minds, that when we're seeking God, our mind flounders helplessly out of its depth, because God is infinite in his being, and we are limited and finite in ours. Our little minds, capable as they are of remarkable achievements in the empirical sciences, are lost when seeking God. If we stand on our proud pedestals to scrutinise and criticise God, we'll never find him. It's not only unseemly to treat God in that way, it is unproductive. If we seek God in that way, we will never find him. If, on the other hand, we step down from our lofty and critical platform and humble ourselves before God, confess our inability to discover him and read the Gospels with an open, unprejudiced mind, like a little child, God will reveal himself. He reveals himself to those who, spiritually speaking, are little children. Now I wonder whether there happens to be anybody in church this morning who has never really found God. And I wonder whether this might be the reason that you've been seeking him with the wrong spirit. God hides himself from the kind of person who thinks what he knows is enough to confidently rule God out of the picture but God reveals himself to those who are humble in seeking him. Now on the outline are five little children, one of whom this morning got very nervous when he saw the outline as to what I might say. Well, if you've been here since uh, the end of the last century, (laughs) then you'll recognise who they all are and what they have in common. They are former and current curers. And they are a very talented and yet a very humble bunch when you consider their academic and business achievements. Neil Barber, who I suppose was the founder of M&M, had a career in IBM before his ordination. Next one, Ed Mole had a career in Shell before which he picked up a degree in chemistry and after that a degree in theology, both from Cambridge. Chris Keane had degrees from Cambridge in computer science and Oxford in theology and had a spell in high tech in between. Nick Weir had degrees in medicine from both Oxford and Cambridge and worked at two of the most prestigious hospitals in the country the John Radcliffe in Oxford and the Maudsley in South East London, where he was a forensic psychiatrist, which is, of course, why we hired him for Basingstoke. <laughs> and, uh, and then there's our Rob, who, like Nick, picked up two degrees in theology. He might not have gone to Oxbridge, but, you know, Rob, I read, I read only two weeks ago 
Now, did you know this, that a degree in economics from Bristol results currently in the highest postgraduate earning of any degree from any place? And yet one characteristic that each of them has is their humility. They are not image over substance. They are humble in submitting their considerable talents to the service of our Lord. And that, of course, is how they found him. So here are two truly amazing claims that Jesus made. First, God hides himself from the intellectually clever and reveals himself to spiritual babes. And second, God is revealed only through Jesus Christ. Well, next, Jesus invites us to come to him. And we move from the two statements Jesus makes to the two invitations which he issues. And the first invitation is this, Come unto me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, notice to whom that invitation is addressed. He's speaking to us, human beings. He's far from being complimentary. He likens us to an oxen laden with such a heavy load that it threatens to crush us. Jesus, you see, assumes that human beings are burdened. And I doubt that we can doubt his diagnosis. There is, for example, the burden of our anxieties and our fears, of our temptations and responsibilities, and of our loneliness. There is a sense that life has no meaning or purpose that it's pointless. And so we choose not to think about that too much. We suppress that thought. Above all, there is the burden of our failures that are properly called sins. Does our conscience never feel its guilt? Does our heart never weary at the sense of shame? Have we never cried out as the Book of Common Prayer compels us to do? The burden of them is intolerable, by which it means unbearable, that we're lumbered with them, that we can't get rid of them, and they alienate us from God. One very perceptive spiritual diagnostician once put it, if these things are not part of our experience, I fear we shall never accept the invitation of Christ. So it is the burdened he invites to come to him. Jesus said in another passage, those who are healthy don't need a doctor, but only those who are sick. We come to him when we sense our spiritual sickness, when we sense our burdens. And the very first step to take towards Jesus Christ is a frank, humble admission that we need him. Nothing keeps people away from Jesus Christ more than our arrogance and unwillingness to acknowledge that we need him desperately. What does Jesus offer with this invitation then to the burdened? He offers to ease their yoke, lift their burden, give them rest and set them free, which is a wonderful prospect. Nobody else can do that but Christ. 
for he is portrayed in the New Testament as the supreme burden bearer. He bore our burden when he died on the cross. Listen again to some of those verses from the New Testament. The Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Behold the Lamb of God who lifts up and bears away the sin of the world. He was once offered to bear the sins of many. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus is a sin bearer and a burden bearer. If we come to him, he will lift our burden from us. That's the very essence of the Christian good news, that the almighty God loves us. In spite of our sin and guilt and rebellion, he loves us and came after us in Jesus Christ. And he wants us back for good. He took our nature upon himself, becoming a human being. He lived the perfect life of love. He had no sin of his own for which atonement was necessary. Then on the cross he identified himself with our sin and guilt. In fact, he was made sin with our sins. And he was made a curse instead of us. In that God-forsaken darkness on the cross, he endured the condemnation that we deserve. And now, on the grounds of his sin-bearing death, if we come to him, he will lift the burden and give us rest, full and free forgiveness, together with a new birth and a new beginning. And Jesus invites us to come if we're burdened, but what do we have to do? And the answer is nothing except come to him. Because salvation is a gift. It's absolutely free and undeserved. But there's no substitute for a personal response and a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. Come to me, Jesus stresses. Some people do try and make it complicated becoming engrossed in the externals of religion. They come to everything and they search through everybody except the one who invites them to come, who is Jesus Christ. It's possible to kind of explore and do all those other things and yet never come to Christ himself. We mustn't stumble over the simplicity of his invitation. And then lastly, Jesus' second invitation is this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. There is a wonderful balance in the Bible. The Christian life is not just taking it easy and enjoying rest. When we come to Christ, he first eases our yoke and then fits his yoke upon us in its place. He not only lifts our burden, but he places his burden upon us instead. There are perhaps too many of us who want the rest without the yoke. We want to lose our burden, but we don't want to gain Christ's. There's mileage in another of C.S. Lewis's observations. I didn't go to religion to make me happy, I always knew a bottle of port would do that. 
If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. The two invitations of Jesus belong together and they come as a package. So what is the yoke of Jesus? Well, a yoke physically is um, that wooden bar that lays across the necks of oxen. And the Jews spoke of the yoke of the Torah, the yoke of the law, because in the Old Testament, a yoke is a symbol of submission to authority. What Jesus meant when he said, take my yoke upon you, he explains by adding, and learn from me. To take upon us the yoke of Christ is to enter into his school, to become his disciple, to regard him not only as our saviour, but as our Lord and teacher, which includes submitting our minds and wills to his lordship bringing every part of our life under his sovereign control. Now, does that sound hard? Well, it might initially, but it isn't really, because all it's doing is getting us to behave the way in which we were made to behave. It is, in fact, the way of liberation, because the burden we lose when we come to Christ is a heavy one, but the burden we gain when we come to Christ, he says, is a light one. What Jesus is inviting us to do in coming to him and learning from him is to find the way of freedom. Jesus describes himself as humble and gentle in heart. So we have nothing to fear from him if we approach him in that way. He is patient. He is a gentle master. And he lays upon us an easy yoke and a light burden if we will but come to him. Now did you notice that although there are two invitations, the promise attached to the two invitations is exactly the same. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me and you will find rest for your souls. Now the way to find rest is to lose our burden at the cross and allow Christ to put his burden and yoke upon us instead. Freedom is not found in discarding the yoke of Christ. It's found in losing our own burden. It's not found in discarding his authority. It's an amazing truth that freedom is found under the yoke of Christ. This is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life. Under his yoke, we find rest. Through service, we find freedom. When we lose ourselves in loving, we find ourselves. And when we die to our self-centeredness, we begin to live. Let's pray. A final thought. Invitations need to be responded to. If you hear the invitation to come to him, respond. And just to encourage us, here is the Lord's promise through Jeremiah 
the Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah 29:12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Heavenly Father, if we hear the invitation to come to you, may, we, may you give us the resolve to do so. Amen.